Welcome to With Them Sounding Board, a podcast sharing powerful business tips, insights, and trends for those seeking to become a rock star in their industry. Welcome, 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 everyone. Thank you for joining us. We are here today to talk about cybersecurity. My name is Aaron Slaughter, and I'm a senior manager at Witham Smith & Brown. Today with us, we have Dave Dorsey. Dave, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, it's nice to be here, Aaron. Uh, name is Dave Dorsey. I've, uh, part, I'm a partner in Witham Smith & Brown. I've been in this business for 36 years, um, and I'm having a great time, and I'm happy to be here. Excellent, excellent. So I'll just go ahead and get us started. The DOLs released some guidelines about a year ago. Uh, I was wondering if we could get your thoughts on just an overview about what these guidelines are and what they mean for someone who may be interested. Yeah, so last April, April of 2021, uh, the Department of Labor issued guidelines uh, directed to employee benefit plans. And those guidelines were focused on cybersecurity best practices and what benefit plans should do uh, to assist the plan itself and uh, the participants and the beneficiaries in the area of cybersecurity. Can you speak at all about what kinds of benefit plans these guidelines are aimed towards? Who should really be caring about these? Well, if you were to take a quick read of the guidelines, you might think that these are focused just on retirement plans. Um, but I, I think the reach is broader than that. Um, I think originally these may have been focused on 401k and other kind of defined uh, contribution benefit plans. But I know in our client base, we have a lot of multi-employer plans. And I think these guidelines apply to any employee benefit plan in the country, whether it's self-administered or whether it uses a TPA, whether it's a defined benefit plan or defined contribution plan. I think it even extends to vacation plans, legal service plans, and apprenticeship and training plans. So if I'm plan management and I see these guidelines get released, I take a look at the list, I see that there are 12 guidelines. Do I need to adapt all 12 or is there any leeway in there? Can you speak at all to that? Well, I think each plan is going to have to review uh, those guidelines um, because each plan is different. Um, and whereas I think generally speaking, I think each plan should consider each of the 12 guidelines that were issued by the department because I think each has a place in one way or another. Um, but frankly, from my perspective, thinking about an employee benefit plan and the trustees that have a fiduciary duty to uh, monitor their plan professionals who are also part of this equation, uh, because the policy really was directed originally towards third-party service providers. So as an example, if you have a DC plan, 401k plan, and you use a, a big name record keeper like uh, Vanguard or Fidelity, I think it was meant to make sure that the folks that have plan data, plan information, um, have solid controls so that there's not a breach involving plan information. Um, if you take that down into our client base, multi-employer space, I think the same thing is true. I think that a board of trustees has a fiduciary duty to make sure that all of their plan service providers, and that would mean not just record keepers, but actuaries, lawyers, accountants, auditors, uh, payroll audit providers, and so forth, I think there's a requirement for them to exercise due diligence over all of those service providers, which would incorporate the guidelines uh, within the, the DOL issuance last April. So I hear you mention service providers and that this was initially geared towards them. 
Can you speak at all about how some of the benefit plans that you've seen and, and come encounter with, how they're handling their service providers with respect to these new guidelines? Sure. Well, it's interesting because I think for the first four months or five months after these guidelines were issued, I really didn't see a whole lot of activity. I would sit in board meetings and hear lawyers advise the board that the department has issued these guidelines, but I didn't see a whole lot of action happen until the fall. Um, and what I'm seeing now is I'm seeing boards of trustees uh, get together and talk about how they're going to approach some of these cybersecurity guidelines. And I think what many of them are doing is they're interviewing outside parties to conduct an assessment, a risk assessment of their cybersecurity practices. And so they're generally contacting a handful of vendors, receiving proposals and listening to presentations and selecting a vendor that's going to help them make an assessment of not only how the plan office is handling their cybersecurity um, issues, but also how each of the third parties are handling theirs. And generally, with respect to the third parties, which you asked about specifically, for the most part, I'm seeing questionnaires that have been developed and sent to the third parties asking them to discuss how their cybersecurity protocols are, are working, what kinds of things they have in place, what kind of certifications they might have, and those questionnaires are then being returned to the fund office. And I think the next step will be an evaluation of those questionnaires to determine whether any of those third-party service providers have issues that cause concern for the Board of Trustees. Um, I also think the plan itself is going to have a risk assessment done. I think there'll be some issues that come out of those that need some remediation or fixing um, so the next decision will be to hire somebody to help resolve those issues. And then this process needs to be done annually, um, which is part of the guidelines. So I'll ask the million dollar question here. Are these guidelines merely a suggestion or are they mandatory? Well, I, I don't think they're mandatory because it's not a regulation. They were issued as guidelines, which is in my opinion, I'm not a lawyer, but in my opinion is the government saying that we strongly suggest that you do this. Um, frankly, in the electronic space, plans should have been doing these kinds of things for years now. And this is just the department formalizing what I think is a lot of common sense and what I think the cyber community has known for a long time are best practices and have been pre best practices for quite a while. Um, as to whether or not I think a plan should, should ignore it, I, I don't think so. I think it makes a lot of good sense for a plan to do this because what I see as a downside is what happens down the road if there is a cyber issue. The government suggested that you should do something and you don't. Not only do you suffer the loss of whatever the information is or the assets might be, but you also could be facing a negligence issue that might be um, addressed by a state or a federal agency, and that would be a very difficult uh, place to be for a board of trustees. So in your opinion, with all of the expertise that you have, how costly do you think something like this would be in terms of implementing these guidelines? Well, the proposals that I'm seeing right now for the initial assessment um, of the plan itself and interactions with the third parties is, I would guess, for a small plan, maybe twenty to $50,000. Um, for a large plan, it could be $100,000 plus to do that exercise. I think that there's another component of this, which is helping plans understand the questionnaires that they get back, 
what other service uh, providers, IT departments mean when they provide these answers? Because if you're like me, I'm not a computer person per se, but um, am I going to be able to understand what the responses really mean and whether they're acceptable or not? So I think they'll need to hire somebody to do that. And then someone's going to have to fix this stuff and make sure that's right and then go back and ensure that the fix has taken place and that, and that it's done effectively. Um, and then on an ongoing basis, I think there'll be a smaller cost going forward. I think there's going to be a heavy lift getting things kind of set in place. Um, the biggest issue that I'm seeing is a lack of documentation. I think a lot of plans have spent a lot of money and invested um, both uh, human power and uh, trust fund assets in making sure that they're as safe as they're capable of being, but they don't have any of this documented. And what a lot of the guidelines focus on is how does that documentation look? Have you, uh, do you have a roadmap for what you've done? And that's where I'm finding that there's a lot of space that needs to be addressed is in the basic policies and procedures that a plan should have in place um, that is just not there at the moment. So just being human for a second and, and recognizing that things usually take longer than we initially think that they will. Has the DOL said anything about how long they're giving plans to implement these guidelines before they start coming and knocking on their doors? Well, it's interesting because I would have told you without any other knowledge that the government might start asking a couple of years from now how plans have taken this guidance and put those into practice. But I can tell you that starting in November of 2021, we started seeing uh, the Department of Labor uh, send document requests to employee benefit plans around the country asking for their cyber information. And so that process took you know, roughly six months, seven months in order to, to initiate. And I know that those are ongoing. So whether the department expects plans to have completely implemented, which I would find is kind of a big lift, whether they're trying to see where the plans are starting to put pl uh, plans in motion, which I think would be an encouraging thing for the government's perspective. The whole point of this was to create awareness. So I hope the government's disposition here is let's make sure that plans are reacting to our guidance and trying to do something about it, even if it takes um, you know, a number of quarters or years to fully put things in place, because some of these uh, solutions may not be cheap. You asked me about cost earlier. And that was the cost to do the assessment. And then you have the cost of fixing things. And I can't really predict what those would be because every plan is in a unique situation. But some of those could be quite costly and might take some time to implement. And the one thing I know about supply and demand is if every plan right now is asking to have all this work done right now, the cost is going to be driven up and delivery times are going to get delayed. So I hope there's patience and understanding on both sides because at the end of the day, ensuring that our plan beneficiaries and participants are secure is really the goal here. And I hope that, that we don't lose sight of that. So if I'm a listener of today's podcast and I'm thinking about how my plan specifically transfers data and the security around that, do you have any suggestions for how we should go about transferring data? Should we use a secure site? Do we have any other safeguards and process? And can you speak at all to what you've seen or even what your firm, our firm, does? Well, I think whether a plan participant is asking this or whether a trustee is asking this, I think that uh, there's a lot of questions that are floating out there. And I think that um, when it comes to transferring data, 
you know, the days of sending everything via email, I hope, are gone and that, that everyone is using more secure ways of doing it. Um, sending information that's encrypted uh, is certainly the way to go now. Um, sending information that does not have uh, PPI or PHI information embedded in it is certainly the right way to go. So I hope that organizations that are, that are sending information scrub it first to make sure that we don't have a problem embedded in there to begin with. Um, I think you're going to see the use of more uh, portals, uh, online services, but on, just because it's online doesn't mean it's secure. So I think there are some questions that you have to ask. But again, the days of just sending an email with a file that has claim information and that kind of thing in it, I, I think you should you should run as fast and as far as you can if somebody wants to do that because what what could hurt, what could happen is if I'm a service provider and I receive that information I would be worried about the liability I might have um, if something happens to that data. So, if I'm interpreting these DOL suggestions, if I'm the regular layperson, does it mean that I have to have a separate security? audit done for my cyber now? Well, I don't know that I would call it an audit. Um, I know that the government has used that term. Uh, I'm a CPA, and so we use the word audit in a slightly different way. I think the IT community uses the word assessment more often than not. And so I do think that every benefit plan should have an assessment that's conducted um, as soon as they reasonably can. Um, by a competent and experienced service provider that can help them navigate not just what's in the guidelines, but what's best practices outside the guidelines. Um, what I mean by that is oftentimes what happens in practice moves a lot quicker than what the government could ever put on paper. And so the bad guys, who are the folks that are trying to get access to our data and our treasure, are coming up with new ways every day of trying to do that. Um, you know, there's a ransomware attack that occurs almost every 11 seconds now in this country. And the ways of doing that change each day. And when there's uh, information available on the dark web for people who wish to do this, um, we're fighting a broader uh, combatant each and every time. So I think it's incumbent upon plans to not just meet these standards, but try to exceed these standards through keeping things current. Um, and that could be as simple as um, making sure I have competent uh, cyber assessments done, but also in other kinds of things. And what I mean by that is that many times I know organizations try to hold on to technology as long as they can. As an example, as long as that laptop can access the internet, then we're able to do our job. Everybody seems to be happy. But the problem is that in today's world, if that laptop is eight years old, and it's not being updated anymore with security features, then that laptop becomes a vulnerability and it can be an access point for a bad actor to come in. And whereas there's certainly a fiduciary uh, balancing act to be done here in terms of spending plan assets, I think we're going to start to see equipment retired quicker as we're trying to focus on um, security enhancements being available more and more often. So with the focus of information and data and documents all now shifting towards more electronic, has that changed the record retention laws and requirements that plans face every day? Well, as far as I can recall, there's nothing that's changed the record retention rules that are covered under ERISA, which are still seven years. Um, so I don't think that particular thing has changed. Now, the way that 
records are maintained. That has clearly changed from where we used to keep things in file cabinets and boxes to where we're keeping things on hard drives and stored in the cloud. So I think that aspect has certainly changed. Um, and I would expect to see more and more um, organizations moving from on-site storage to cloud-type storage. Um, again, just using cloud storage isn't an answer in and of itself. It has to be the right kind of cloud storage. But I do see that changing dynamic moving from the paper world to the digital world. So humor me for a second, Dave. If my plan has been selected by the DOL for an audit, how worried should I be? Well, I wish I could answer that with some degree of knowledge, Aaron. Um, plans are being asked by the department now to provide documentation. I don't know what the reaction is going to be. Um, it would be my hope that the government would take a position that our desire here was to move plans into a direction which makes things safer. And as long as folks are trying to do that in a way that's reasonable um, and not delayed, and we don't see folks that are you know, putting their heads in the sand and trying to avoid it, I would hope that the government would encourage that um, and not discourage it. Um, but for a lot of plans, this is a heavy lift. This is moving from a world where they were primarily paper to a world where they're now doing things electronically. Um, we are just getting through, I hope, this whole COVID pandemic period where plans had to shift or pivot, I guess is the buzzword these days, really quickly to moving from paper to electronic. And did they make that shift in the best possible way, knowing it had to be done quickly? So I think this is a great time to reevaluate some of the practices we have within our plans. I think it's a great time to talk about how we should do things differently going forward. And importantly, make sure that we're doing our level best to ensure that bad actors can't get access into our systems. And so I think the days of having a penetration tester who does work for a benefit plan on an annual basis is something we're going to start to see more and more of because um, that's a way of ensuring that we're at least making an effort to keep our plan safe. And in, in this business, you know, we may not be able to pre prevent a loss, but we also don't want to be accused of being negligent because we didn't do the things that we could have done. So I think pen testing, risk assessments, I think most everything you see in these guidelines will start to become common practice. And, and it's a good idea. Frankly, it's, it's overdue. So I think that's a good thing. Now, there's only so many uh, professionals that do this, so I think it will take some time to implement across the board. Wow. Well, that was amazing. And I really just want to take a second just to say thank you, Dave, for being here with us and all of your insightful answers. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for being here with us. We'll see you again next time. This is Witham in Cybersecurity. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you'll be first in line to hear what's coming next. Don't want to wait for our next episode? Check us out at Witham.com. That's W-I-T-H-U-M.com.